If you open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> when you get there, if you would stand with me as we, I read God's word for us. So it is chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Abinadab, and Abinadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, and Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Amon, and Amon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Je Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Sheltiel, and Sheltiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiad, and Abiad begot Eli Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Akam, and Akam begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the history of the Jewish people, uh, the lineage of Jesus. Thank you for bringing... Jesus, into this world through such flawed people. Lord, thank you for bringing us together this morning to study your word and bringing us into a new book, a gospel, a proclamation of the good news. Please help us to, to learn from you, to drink in the, the living water, and to let the word and your spirit working through the word conform us to your image. Please help us to be hearers of the word this morning. Let's help us to hear what you have to say and then be doers also and not just look in a the mirror and then forget what we look like. We pray that we would see the truth of Jesus through these, your wonderful word this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please go ahead and have a seat. So we start a new book today. Yay! And it's a gospel. This is the first gospel we get to do together as a church. 
We've done some pretty long books, but never, never just one of, one of the big four. So Matthew is the first in the sequence of the gospel. It's not the first in the writing. It's believed that Luke was written before Matthew and that, or excuse me, Mark was written before Matthew. And Matthew takes from Mark. So that's how we generally date Matthew. I believe around 60 AD it was written. And it's a gospel. It's good news. It's the heart of what we're talking about. We should never lose sight of when we are looking at a gospel or the Bible in general that it's the proclamation of our Savior, how he got here, what he did, what he's offering, salvation through him. The history is wonderful. The history testifies to what Jesus did. But it's all about the good news. So we have four gospels. And why do we have four gospels? It's the same story, so can't he just tell it once? Each one of the Gospels is like a, a different aspect of the same story. It's telling the same story in a different way so that different people can understand it. There's all different types of personalities in this world, even in this room. We're very different people. If we told one story the same way, some people would immediately get it, and some people would have more trouble. If you look at how Jesus spoke and taught when he was on earth, he often told the story a couple of different ways to make his point. So that person over here gets it immediately. person over here is struggling. Oh, okay, the second time around they get it. The idea is God is saying, here is my son. And I'm going to tell you four different ways what he did, why he's here, and why you need to understand so that everyone gets it. It's an expression of love that God would provide four Gospels, not just one. But it's also an expression of as when people who reject Jesus stand before him, either at their death or if they make it to, to the very end, they're going to say, I didn't understand. I didn't know. Jesus is going to say, there's four Gospels. We told you four different ways. We tried every possible thing so that you can come to me. And now you're saying you don't know? Matthew in particular is set out and writing to the Jewish world. He's writing to the Jewish people, his people. It is to everyone. We're reading it today. But it was originally meant for the Jewish people and to present Jesus as their king. The king has come. The Lion of Judah, long prophesied in the Old Testament, has arrived. And in that way, it makes sense that it starts with a genealogy. We look at a genealogy, and particularly in the United States, who your parents are is really not that important. We're the country of new beginnings. It's wonderful that way. But in Israel, the genealogies were what they were all about. They called themselves the children of Abraham. Who, what tribe they belonged to often was their identity. So you had Levites. If you were born a Levite, you already had a job. Your life was planned out for you. If you were born in one tribe, 
you were supposed to live in a certain area and have ancestral homes there. Their significance in the world was set out by the fact that they were children of Abraham, that they were part of the nation set out, set apart by God. So genealogies in general were really important to the Jewish people, but even more so for the king. The king, how do we know someone is a king? They are the child of a king. How do they know the, the king of a certain area? You had to trace back through their genealogy, through their lineage, to show a connection to the previous king and the previous king before that. The Jewish people had the Old Testament. They, had, they started from a really early age to learn the scripture, probably more so than, than any of us. Lots of them knew it by heart by the time they got to be a certain age. And they knew all of the markers that we now look at that said this was going to be the Messiah. This was going to be the Messiah. The Messiah is going to come, Isaiah 53. The, excuse me. The Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. The wise men know it. The Messiah is going to come in riding on a donkey. They knew all these signs so that if you look in the book of Matthew, he starts off first with exactly what they need. Matthew saying, Jesus is king. Here's a genealogy. We're kind of like, genealogy, it's a bunch of names. But this would have been perfect. They would be like, whoa, that's awesome. This is exactly what we need. But then even as you go through the, the book, it's tailored to the Jewish people in that there is all throughout allusions to the Old Testament, references to the Old Testament. There's 53 direct quotations from the Old Testament in Matthew. There's 76 allusions in addition to those 53 uh, quotations in Matthew. So Matthew is saying, I understand you need pro proof from the Old Testament. Here it is. Matthew says eight times fulfilled. I understand you need proof from the Old Testament. This is how Jesus fulfills it. This is the prophecy. This is how it comes true with Jesus. Matthew uses the term uh, kingdom of heaven 33 times. You know how many times the other gospel gospels use that? Zero. It's a very Jewish concept. Part of it is they, they want to, when you say kingdom of God, you'd have to write out God, Yahweh. And the Jewish people were uncomfortable with that. So Matthew is catering to his audience. I think this is really interesting for us, just as people who want to share Jesus' gospel with people. Sometimes there's a recommendation, you might hear it, do it the same way every time. You go in, you have a formula, you do this, and you get the gospel out there. But that's not what God does. That's not what love does. Do you treat your brother or sister or wife or child the same as anyone else? 
because you love them, you understand them and understand what they need and understand how to approach a subject better than with other people. I think when, when we go out and try to share the gospel with people, we have to look at them and really look at them and love them and present it in a way that if you can, if you can understand them, that a person can understand it. Some people might need the proverbial punch in the nose with the gospel. Hey, you're a sinner. You want to be saved? Some people might just need real, real gentleness because they're not proud, they're not arrogant, they're just really lost. Some people might, might need apologetics, appeals to science. Just ways to love that person to the gospel. Just like the Lord does with the, the four different gospels. But they all lead to Jesus. And they all lead to the presentation of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, death, and resurrection. Just like whenever we're speaking to someone, that's where we should be leading. So Matthew also references the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. The Romans would have no idea what the Son of Man was, who he was, why, why it was important. He talks about Jerusalem being the holy city. Romans don't care about Jerusalem. It's just the Jews. The fulfillment of their scripture, their conquering king, their soon-to-be conquering king, their Lion of Judah, their Messiah has arrived, and he's going to prove it to them. It's interesting, the Mark presents Jesus more as a servant. He's coming to serve. Mark is written to the Romans. John presents Jesus as God. He's presented either primarily to the church or others argue just to the world, to everyone. Then uh, Luke presents as humanity. So we have four separate viewpoints, and Luke is to the Greek people. There's lots of commentators, and it's a really interesting comparison. They, they take those four aspects of the Gospels. So his humanity, his deity, his as a servant, and as king, the Lion of, of Judah. And they compare it with Ezekiel chapter 10, when Ezekiel is taken to heaven. And he sees a picture, he sees God on his throne. There's the rainbows everywhere. Ezekiel is doing his best to try to explain what he's seeing. But even that, we, when you read it, it's just a picture. It's human understanding of what is so amazing in heaven. But there's a creature, an angelic creature, the cherubim, in front of the throne. And he's got four wings, and he's got four faces. And the four faces are an ox, a man, an eagle, and a lion. The lion, the lion of Judah, the king of Israel, 
that's prophesied to come. An ox is a picture of a servant. The servant present, presented in the Gospel of Mark. The man is the picture of humanity. Makes sense. And then the eagle is the picture of, of deity. So the connection between what's before God's throne and the, the presentation of God's message, it's just amazing. To make the presentation to Matthew, and here's where God, in his sovereignty, chooses a man. God could write this entire message on the clouds, and we can just look up and see it. But instead, he, he chooses Matthew. Matthew itself, the name means beloved or gift of Yahweh, gift of God. If you look at Matthew, he is perfect. He's a perfect messenger of this particular message. Why? Because he can present the evidence of kingship while also not losing sight of the important core message of the gospel. When we, we pick up Matthew, when Jesus finds him, he's not being called Matthew, he's Levi. It's believed that he, he's born Levi, and then Jesus changes his name to Matthew. Do you remember the story of, of Levi, Matthew, tax collector? He's sitting at his booth collecting taxes, and Jesus comes along and says, follow me. And what does Levi do? There's no questions. There's no doubts. There's no hesitation. He just gets up and follows after Jesus. If we leave it there, it's a wonderful story, but it's not the whole story. Just by his name, Levi, it's indicative that he's probably a Levite a priest or a, a worker at the temple. His identity when he's born, his parents, the parents in a Jewish culture, would give them the name that was either with the tribe or with their hopes for them. He's born a nice Jewish boy named Levi, who's got his whole life ahead of him serving God. That's what he's born to do. Spend his days at the temple worshiping, working for the Lord. But by the time Jesus finds him, what is he doing? He's serving the Romans. That's about as far as you can get from being a Levite during that time period. The Romans had come in and conquered Israel. And there's still the Jewish people at this point hated the Romans with passion. They despise the Romans. They're going to revolt against them in about 40 years. And they viewed the tax collectors. In order to, to run the Roman Empire, the Romans put tax collectors in, in each of the areas, independent contractors, essentially. And they would be local people. And the Romans would set a certain amount. This is what the taxes you have to collect. And anything you can collect above that is yours. So what did the ugly heart of man do? The tax collectors 
stole from people. They would set the taxes up here and just use the might. They were able to use the Roman Empire, the Roman army, to collect those taxes, to get personally rich. We know just from the hints in the account that Levi was probably pretty rich. Pretty rich. After he is saved, he then goes back to his house and has a big party with all his tax collector friends, which is wonderful, but it indicates he's got a big house and lots of tax collector friends. So he's really, really lost. The Jews would not talk to the tax collectors. They thought they were traitors. They were committing treason against the nation of Israel. And before Jesus, he was fine with that. You got to wonder, or maybe I just have to wonder, whether Levi actually has a clear view of what's going on during that time. Because when Jesus comes and gives him the truth, he's out of there like that. Before Jesus... If he's looking around at the Jewish world, at Jewish religion, the Pharisees and the priests, who were hypocrites and liars, who were extorting the religion of God for their own purposes. If Levi has a clear view of what's going on, what is his response? These guys are liars. This isn't real religion. This isn't real faith. If they're just about making money, why don't I just go make money and be a tax collector? Just my, my personal wondering whether he's just disgusted with the, the hypocrisy. So he kind of checks out of the whole system and goes and collects taxes. Have you guys seen this in, in our world? There are churches that are robbing people blind, that are beating people with false doctrine just to get their money. And you wind up talking to these poor people who've gone to these churches and they're so frustrated and so disgusted with false religion that they're doing all sorts of things. And I say, if this is religion, I don't want any, anything to do with it. But they're in a great position like to be like Levi. When you come along, the truth of Jesus, it's so simple. Follow me. It seems like a, the generations, the younger generations are just begging for someone to tell them the truth simply. Come on, follow him. <laughs> know the truth and offer the truth. So Levi, the, the priest, is about as far as he can get. His life is so lost. And then he meets Jesus. And he gets to experience the mercy and love and forgiveness of Jesus. So he's got the background. He understands Judaism. He's Levi. He's a tax collector, so he had to be good with records and numbers and 
keeping track of things. And then he experiences personally the wonderful, awesome grace and forgiveness and love and joy of Jesus. Is that a perfect person to write about Jesus to the Jewish people? Jesus changes his name to to Matthew, the the gift of Yahweh. And you can look at it both ways. God put him in that position as a gift to him. And Levi receives the gift. Unearned, everything he had done was greatly evil. And God saves him and just gives him a gift and then has him write the gospel for all of us. Do we understand that the same gift we, we have received? It doesn't matter what we've been doing, what we were doing before Christ. We are just as gifted. We are just as not, we did not do anything in ourselves to earn our salvation. And God came along and said, follow me. Most of us were probably not like Levi getting up and just walking. His life had just completely changed in a moment. A life following Jesus should be different than the life before Jesus. It doesn't mean automatically leaving a profession if it's taking advantage of people, yes, but there should be a change in us as we walk so that we can then turn around like Matthew and we might use our past skills and our past information and our training, but we can turn around and say, this is what I have, this is what I'm gonna, Jesus is gonna use, this is what Jesus did for me. Isn't it wonderful? It's such a gift. And he turns to the Jewish people <laughs> who are so proud of their heritage. They're so arrogant in their standing as the children of Abraham. We're perfect. We got everything going. Remember when they say to Jesus, we've never been the slaves to anybody. as they're suffering under the Roman occupation and have been the slaves to the Medo-Persians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians. Because it's their identity. They're proud people. They're stiff-necked people. We're Israelites. And Matthew's genealogy reflects the truth about their history intentionally and it's very different than their expectation. You ever seen a movie where the, the warrior guy stands up, I'm Uthar, son of Uthar, son of... And they're the warrior kings for like a hundred generations. That's what the Israelites were expecting. Set out the, the, our history of greatness. But instead, in, in this list of names, 
you set out essentially the story of God's plan. You have man's sin repeatedly, man's attempt to fix it, which fails, and then Jesus. In these begots, there's so, so much in there. There's so much of a story than just the begot. I was reading it, it made me chuckle. The little boy who was asked by his mom after Sunday school, what'd you learn today? And the little boy said, I learned about all the forgots, forgots in the Bible. <laughs> Abraham forgot Isaac. But if you look at the guys and you look at the people in there, they think Abraham and think, that's, we're children of Abraham. Abraham's awesome. Abraham was a liar. He lied repeatedly to protect himself. Isaac did the very same thing. He lied to protect himself. Jacob does anybody here actually like Jacob? <laughs> He's such a hard character. But because he's just like us. Judah. Jesus is the lion of Judah. Judah is a fornicator. Judah takes Joseph and throws him down the well. This awesome, shiny, illustrious history is just filled with the sin of men. Then we have the kings that, of which they're so proud. And it's really interesting, because you remember when the, the, the king was requested? They're being ruled by God himself through his prophets. And... Israel looks around them and says, we want a king like these people. The king is going to fix our problems. During the time that the nation is a mess because of people's sins, and rather than crying out to God, they say, nope, we're going to fix it. This is self-determination. We need to fix ourselves. We don't need God. We've had enough of you over here. We're going to fix it. So you get Saul. Saul's not in, in the, the uh, genealogy. But he's, he's a mess. So bad that, that the kingship is taken from his family and given to David. And David is wonderful in some ways. He's a man after God's own heart. You can't get higher praise than that. But he's also an adulterer and a murderer. And his problems with sexual things leads to his family going Solomon has hundreds of wives and gives into their religion so that he's building temples to false gods Rehoboam causes the kingdom God's kingdom to split because of his sin Manasseh, and these guys are all listed in 
the genealogy as the kings who precede Jesus. Manasseh is so evil, he's listed as one of the most evil kings in the entire history of Israel. These are the kings. This is what our choice to rule ourselves without God, human government gets us. If we choose a king, if it's a man-king, it always ends in sin. So the Jews are expecting this, this glorious recitation of the history of Israel. And this is what Matthew comes in with. It had to be hard, right? It's not what they're expecting. But Jesus says, this is my family. This is my history. But he doesn't leave it there. Because in verse, starting in verse 3, it says, And Judah begot Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Abinadab, and Abinadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Do you see what got, got slipped in there? Ladies, women. This would have been un unthinkable in the ancient Jewish genealogies where they're only concerned with men. And not only were, were women included, but look at the women. Tamar. Tamar was with Judah. Tamar originally married Judah's son, and then the son died. By Jewish law, the next son is supposed to come along and marry that wife. But the next son comes along and marries the wife, but refuses to provide an heir. He's trying to trick God. So God strikes him dead. And it should have been the, there's another son coming along, he's way younger. But because of the trickery, the sin, Tamar has been stolen or robbed of an heir. So do you remember what she does? She disguises herself as a prostitute and waits by the side of the road for Judah to come along. And Judah sees her and says, hey. And they make a deal. He doesn't have any money with her, so with him. So they have relations, and he gives her his staff, his ring. And then later, they leave. And then later, when Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant, he says, oh, I, I understand. That's, that's really... I love you. We're going to support you. No, they say, let's kill her. She's horrible. 
She's been unfaithful until she breaks out the stuff from him and says, here's the father. Obviously, that's, that's quite a paraphrase, but... <laughs> Is anyone in that story good? Tamar pretends to be a prostitute. Judah's hanging out with prostitutes and lying, and he's a hypocrite, and yet God brings them into the family of Jesus. She's been totally left out to dry, but Jesus never leaves us there. Brings her in. Rahab is a Canaanite prostitute. Can you imagine how messed up a Canaanite prostitute's life had to have been? The Canaanites were horrible, just in general. A regular Canaanite life had to be filled with wickedness. But because of her simple faith when she sees the Israelites, she's saved from Jericho, brought into the family of God, even just saved enough would have been a great act of mercy. But no, she's brought into the family, she's married, and she becomes part of the family of Jesus. Ruth is, we can actually like Ruth, because she's wonderful. Not like we don't like anyone, but she's actually virtuous. She's faithful. When everyone else is despairing, she said, I'm going to follow God. But she's a foreigner. She's a, a, from Moab. And Moab, people from Moab were not allowed to be part of the people of Israel for 10 generations after they would get married. But she's faithful to God. And she trusts God. And when she uh, encounters Boaz, who is a picture of Jesus, she has faith and trust. And she is redeemed out of the terrible situation she's, she's in and brought into the family. There's some discretion in, in the verse where it says, begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Who's it talking about? Bath, Bathsheba. Who was bathing on the, the top of the roof and causes, well, they both cause, but is involved with the, the adultery with David. The adultery that, that results in her husband, Uriah, being murdered. And there's consequences at the time. Their, their son dies. But God doesn't leave them there. Because they're weeping, because they're repentant, because they come back to God after their great sin. There's more children. They're She's specifically mentioned as part of the family of God. Jesus is saying in, in the genealogy, 
And it really just had to blow the doors off the Jewish people. That this is my family. This is the line through which the king comes. The lion of Judah comes through these flawed, messy people. Because I am a king of redemption and salvation and mercy. I am the king you rejected, but I'm coming anyway. Because my plan is better than your plan. Your plan of salvation, your plan of solution will always end in pain. Self-determination never works out well for us. When they did these genealogies, it's interesting, they would usually name it after the oldest person. They say the genealogy of Abraham or the genealogy of Adam. But what is this one called? It's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And he gets to define, as king, he gets to define what the story is about. It's not about the greatness of Israel. It's not about the greatness of the the patriarchs. It's not about the greatness of the king. Previous kings. It's about redemption. It's about Jesus coming for us and never leaving us where we get ourselves into. Like Ruth, like Rahab, like David. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, And starting at verse 26. Paul says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put shame to the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. The Bible talks about how we're going to be held up before angels, before the universe with Jesus saying these are who I redeemed. This is how great I am that I redeemed these people. Is anyone too, too far gone for that? Anyone further gone than Rahab? Because it's his power, his glory, his redemption, his mercy that testifies not our hard work, not our self-determination or will. We're going to work. We're going to determine things. We're going to determine to follow Jesus. But ultimately, it's him, and it's his genealogy. It's his story, and he tells us what it's all about.
In verse 16, it says, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. Joseph is just the husband of Mary. He's not the father of Jesus. If you're struggling today, if you're struggling just in life, but here today, you're struggling with the walk with the with your walk with the Lord. Just whether struggling with sin or just feeling dry and lost, or just fighting between the world and the family of God. Today, take the opportunity. For Rahab, all it took was saying, I believe you. I trust you. I see what's in front of my face, a giant army of two million people. I want that life. And he'll welcome you into the family of God.